News Talk 1110-993 WBT, the Pete Callender Show. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me hang out with you. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. We're picking up on this uh, New York Times editorial, very lengthy, talking about, well, I'll give you the headline here, America has a free speech problem. And while they do the, both sides are engaging in this kind of thing, most of the piece is obviously directed at the, uh, the excesses, shall we call them, that are occurring on the left. And they put a poll out with Siena College, and they asked people to discuss, uh, or they, ha- they asked people how they felt when they discussed six topics, religion, politics, gender identity, race relations, and then they... Uh, ask them, compare how you feel talking about these topics to how you talked about them 10 years ago. Do you feel more free? Do you feel less free? Or about the same? Those who felt freest, you know who they would be? Blacks. Isn't that amazing? Black respondents. At least 30% of them said that they felt more free to speak on every topic, including 42% on race relations, the highest share of any racial or ethnic group. Still, that sentiment of more freedom among black respondents was only 46%, so it's not even a majority. So even, and that's the, that's the, the most freest people feel. It's still not a majority of any racial demographic. 66% of respondents agreed with this statement. You ready? Quote, our democracy is built upon the free, open, and safe exchange of ideas, no matter how different they are, we should encourage all speech so long as it is done in a way that doesn't threaten others. Okay, so two sentences. Our democracy is built upon the free, open, and safe exchange of ideas, no matter how different they are. We should encourage all speech so long as it is done in a way that doesn't threaten others. I agree with that statement. I would be part of the 66% that agree with that statement. 30% agreed with another statement. They said, quote, while I support free speech, oh, oh, I hear a but coming, (laughs) right? 30% said, while I support free speech, sometimes you have to shut down speech that's anti-democratic, bigoted, or simply untrue. Would you like to take a guess? In fact, I'll give you three guesses. The demographic that voted or that, uh, that answered in that way. What demographic do you think answered that question that way? All right, I'll give you three guesses, and the first two do not count. That is correct. Those who identified themselves as Democrats and liberals showed a higher level of support for sometimes shutting down free speech. (gasps) No way. Really? Well, I actually think that number should be higher. Now, I don't have any evidence to go off of on that. I got to be pretty, I got to be clear about that. I'm going to. Be very upfront. I have no evidence to support this this premise, this assertion, okay? But the, the, the first sentences that I read, especially the one that said, we should encourage all speech so long as it is done in a way that doesn't threaten others, I think that there are probably a bunch of leftists that are caught up in that response too because I think that's a convenient trap door they can jump down. 
right there that it doesn't threaten others. Because for the last decade, we've been told from the college campus ministers of wokeism, they've been telling us that words are violence. Oh, also silence is violence too. So, yeah, sorry about that. We just were all violent. Um, but your your words, your words can harm people. And you know, simply coming to a campus to speak in a debate about free speech as what was just literally shut down at Yale Law School. This is kind of terrifying. These are the lawyers. These are the people that are going to be in the legal field protecting the institutions of the judicial branch. And you've got people coming out of these Ivy League schools that believe in the heckler's veto, that they should be able to shut you down because they don't like what you say because they believe it harms somebody. That you having an opinion harms somebody. So that's why I think that the numbers 66 to 30%, you know, because it sounds like they put those two statements out there, you know, which do you agree with that, you know, encourage free speech or sometimes you got to shut down speech. And it was 66 for free speech and 30% shutting it down. And that was mostly leftists on that side, Democrats and liberals. They were all on that side of shutting down speech. But I think that that number is probably higher because there's the little uh, caveat in the in the first answer about harmful speech in the course of their fight for tolerance. The editorial goes on to say, this is now I'm almost done. Page six. I'm, I'm promised in the course of their fight for tolerance. Many progressives have become intolerant of those who disagree with them or express other opinions and taken on a kind of self-righteousness. <gasps> no way. Self-righteousness among leftists. It's crazy as well as censoriousness. <gasps> no way! And the right, uh, that the right, rather, long displayed and the left abhorred. So what are they saying? You guys have become right-wingers. That's what they said. This was what the right wing did. They were all self-righteous and censorious, and now you guys are doing it too. Which again, but this sentence uh, jumps out at me because they say in the course of their fight for tolerance, many have become intolerant. So, so often, the, shall we say, excesses of the left, they are set up as the, the noble reformers who just got lost along the path to utopia. You know, just, I don't know, we made some sort of a wrong turn someplace. We, we went into it with the most noble and purest of intentions. Our cause was true. But something happened. We're not sure what happened. Meanwhile, folks on the right are like, we told you the natural destination here is no bueno. And and then they arrive at the no bueno destination. They're like, I can't believe we arrived at no bueno. What's going on? And, of course, there's the New York Times. Like, it's okay. You didn't know this is where it was going. It's just, it just somehow happened. It's like you know, real Marxism has never been tried. It's the exact same mentality. It's denial is what it is. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110, and also Pete at the Pete Callender Show.com. Here is 
uh, email from Joe. He says, I think a lot of people are scared to discuss politics with people outside of their in-group and especially at work because one wrong comment and they're calling the blue-haired college commie wannabe in your company's HR and causing you trouble. Big brother doesn't silence people. Big boss man does it for him. That's one of the things I've uh, and I haven't mentioned today. So thank you for the message because it gives me the opportunity to say it, which is I also recognize that I have privilege. I have radio host privilege. Not everybody gets to get on the air and say their opinions about things like I do. This is right people that I am hired to do this job, which is always funny to me when you see these stories about radio hosts that get fired for saying controversial things. That was the job description. Why are you firing the guy for doing the job you asked him to do? So that's a side note, but I have that privilege, but with that privilege comes a lot of responsibility. You, you, you do like there is an FCC license that is in jeopardy. If you say stupid things and bad things, right? You can risk the entire operation. So there are responsibilities that come with it. But I also recognize that a lot of people are not free to talk about this stuff with coworkers, with neighbors and friends and all of that. Now, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people just come to me and they talk to me about this stuff once they know who I am or what I do. And usually I can tell someone's politics by some of the comments that they make uh, before they know what I do. But also um, people who disagree with me once they've found out what I do and where I do it, like, oh, you're on, you know, conservative talk station. When they find that out, then they don't talk politics to me. So now they're self-censoring. But every now and again, look, the COVID, the last year or, yeah, the last year, I think a lot of people, as we were getting back together and people were having a lot more of these conversations I think a lot of people uh, wanted to talk with others about these things that they were thinking. And Limbaugh used to talk about this all the time, that when he first started, this is what this is why he was so great. This is why he built this entire I have my job because of him. I have everything because of Rush Limbaugh, because he built this entire industry and he gave voice to opinions and thoughts and analysis that people in America thought they were the only ones thinking about. And he comes along and gets on the radio and says these things, and they say, that's what I thought. I thought I was the only one. And then they hear people call in and agree. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, there's more of us than we thought. As he used to say, I am equal time. Monica says that she is now going to tell everybody that she works in radio. There you go. That's it. You got radio privilege <laughs> or podcast. There you go. Start a podcast. And then you could just say, I'm a podcaster. The, I get, I'm just giving my opinions on stuff. Um, so the New York times editorial on the free speech stuff, they talk about the cancel culture that does exist, which they for a long time didn't think existed, even though it existed at their news department. At the same time, they say all Americans should be deeply concerned about an avalanche of legislation passed by Republican-controlled legislatures around the country that gags discussion of certain topics and clearly violates the spirit of the First Amendment, if not the letter of the law. 
Not necessarily true. There's always been an age-appropriateness standard in K-12 schooling. Always. You don't get to talk to kindergartners about gender-affirming sex change operations and whether uh, because they picked a certain toy, you know, you might be a boy or you might be a girl. You get to decide that. You don't get to do that to a five-year-old. And by the way, I'm looking at you like through a creepy lens if you're trying to do that to a five-year-old. Seriously. You're, I mean, and I say this as a person, I never, so years ago, I heard a coworker talking on the air about uh, how she took her kids, very young children, to the park. And she takes them to the park and she notices there's a guy sitting on a park bench alone. And it creeped her out. And she thought, like, who is this guy? Made her very afraid. And I always remember that because I was being a single guy. I thought, is that how, like, a single woman would perceive a single guy sitting on a park bench? Now, maybe that was just her. But maybe there were other people that would also think I was creepy, too. So I would never, ever, ever go to a playground, near a playground, anywhere near a playground, unless I was with my nieces or nephews, right? If I was bringing some kids, then fine. But I'm not going to just go and hang out, even though I had, like, I, my last house, we had a park uh, right behind our house, and there was a playground right there, and the benches were right there, and I would very much have liked to have gone out there and sit outside. But no, I did not do that because I didn't want to make people uncomfortable because I'm a giver. That's what I am. I am a nice person. I'm a considerate person. I give them peace of mind. So if you're coming at me saying, hey, I want to be able to talk about my uh, uh, sexual preferences with your five-year-old kid, I'm thinking much along the lines of my former coworker. That's what it strikes me as. Why do you need to be grooming this five-year-old? What's up? What's happening there? And then, of course, the New York Times calls it the don't say gay bill, which it doesn't actually do that. But, uh, yeah, we'll take that up in a second. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Got a message on the Twitter machine from Mark Starling uh, up in the mountains of Asheville. He said, Pete, don't forget about protest privilege. A lot of that here. It's that freedom to burn down and destroy the city, but only if you're a leftist. That's right. Protest privilege. It is real. It is real. On college campuses and in many workplaces, Speech that others find harmful or offensive can result not only in online shaming, but also in the loss of livelihood. Some progressives believe this has provided a necessary and even welcome check on those in power. But when social norms around acceptable speech are constantly shifting and when there is no clear definition of harm, these constraints on speech can turn into arbitrary rules with disproportionate consequences. You don't say. It's always been the problem. They want the ability to define all terms in all arguments. And that is Calvin Ball. Here you go. What is harm? This is written by a woman named Lauren Huff. Last year, she said, I published an essay 
is a collection of essays, actually, called Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing. The book began with a story about serving in the Air Force in the 1990s. Don't ask, don't tell was still the law then. But somebody went ahead and assumed anyway, and they torched my car. It's never a bad idea to open up with an explosion. I wanted to talk about how it felt to be forced to hide, to be forced into silence for fear of getting fired or worse, not being able to trust coworkers, fellow airmen, or even friends for fear of being outed. That's something many of us experience, but too many people don't understand the constant fear, sometimes even actual terror, of serving under the don't ask, don't tell policy and the bleeping loneliness of it all. I wasn't new to that fear. Like too many queer people, I grew up knowing there was a part of me I had to hide. I was raised by love the sinner, not the sin, evangelical Christian types who showed that love, who showed that love by trying to beat the sin out of me. It wasn't that unusual. She goes on to say later that while anyone can write a book, not everybody can get a book published. And I didn't have a clue about how to go about doing it. She says there's a reason that there's an entire industry built around preying on the hopes and dreams of struggling writers. When you don't have any connections, paying somebody $1,000 to teach you how to find an agent can seem like a pretty good idea. I didn't have $1,000. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know where or how to submit work magazines. I didn't know where to begin or how to begin. Fortunately, like many hopeful writers, I found guidance on Twitter, which is to say I found established writers who were generous enough to help. One of those writers was a woman by the name of Sandra Newman. She believed in me and took me seriously long before she had any reason to. So fast forward a few weeks ago, I was notified that I had been named as a finalist for the Lambda Literary Prize. So I Googled Lambda Literary Prize, not knowing what it was. And it exists because when somebody like me, which is to say a queer person, manages to publish a book with queer themes, those books are often ignored by mainstream prize committees. Prizes get media attention. Prizes create name recognition, bring in new readers. They sell books. Prizes like the Lambda also come with a check. It would have been nice if my book had won a prize, but now it won't. My book won't win a prize because my friend Sandra Newman wrote a book. The premise of her book is, what if all the men disappeared? When she announced the book on Twitter, have you heard of YA Twitter? YA Twitter, letters Y and A. Young adult, that's what it stands for. Fans, presumably fans of young adult fiction. This is the single most terrifying thing that can happen to a writer on Twitter if you get noticed by young adult fiction, YA Twitter. Because they are somehow unfamiliar with the concept of fiction. YA Twitter doesn't do nuance. They don't understand metaphor or thought experiment. They expect fictional characters to be good and moral and just, whether antagonistic or protagonistic. They expect characters and plot to be free of conflict. They require fiction to portray a world without racism, bigotry, and bullies. And when YA Twitter gets a wind of, uh, gets wind of a book that doesn't meet their demands, they respond with a beatdown, unrelenting and vicious. They call it call-out culture because bullying is wrong unless your target is somebody you don't like for social justice reasons, of course. Publishing, the publishing world, has not yet figured out how to respond to YA Twitter. 
Authors who have been targeted have left social media entirely. Reviewers shy away. Publishers have pulled books. Authors have changed lines, characters, and scenes in their books, hoping to avoid becoming a target or to appease YA Twitter once they have been targeted. And once they have been targeted, those writers often find themselves alone. Friends and colleagues silent for fear of becoming targets themselves. The entirety of the publishing world is terrified of a few hundred self-described book lovers on social media who are shockingly bad at reading books. When YA Twitter came for Sandra Newman, someone who has always been there for me, I responded. I told them, read the book before you condemn it. I told them characters and plot don't necessarily reflect the politics and views of the author. Oh, kicker on the story here. Sandra Newman, the author of the book about what happened if all the men were gone. She's non-binary. She's a non-binary author. So because this woman who wrote this piece, Lauren Huff, because Lauren Huff defended Sandra Newman by way of telling people, hey, maybe read the book first before you criticize what the book is about. In other words, let me see if I can just distill this down into a clear thought, maybe like a, like a cliche, if you will. I'm going to make this up on the fly here. Don't judge a book by its cover. Something like that. Maybe go with something like that. Lambda Literary Prize, uh, the Lambda Literary Prize nomination for Lauren Huff was withdrawn. To be clear, she says, Lambda Literary, an organization founded to champion queer writers, to preserve queer culture, to bring attention to queer writers who might otherwise never get recognition by mainstream organizations, withdrew the nomination of my book because when I saw my friend being piled on by people making assumptions about a book they hadn't read, I responded. A literary award was withdrawn because I told people to read a bleeping book. She says, I am a queer woman. I was silenced most of my life. I found my voice, but if my nomination is being withdrawn for using it, then what the bleep is the point of Lambda Literary anyway? That, for folks who don't know what, quote, cancel culture looks like, that's cancel culture. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Thanks for hanging out. I appreciate it. Britt Winterbull coming up next. He's already uh, out there getting the hallway hyped. Uh, so I want to take just a minute here uh, because I was not aware until I saw the piece at the Charlotte Observer yesterday or day before by Jonathan Limehouse that Dan Starks passed away. I did not know that he had died. And um, Dan Starks I knew from years ago. He died at the age of 73 uh, back in February on the 18th. He had spent 30-plus years as a personal safety instructor in, in all sorts of forms and fashion. And uh, he was a self-defense guy. And his big thing was don't be a victim. That's what I remember. He had this huge, he had, he had like a TV segment. I remember when he launched this stuff. I did a lot of interviews with him. I even went and took a concealed carry class that he taught uh, years ago. The nicest guy. Just the nicest guy and filled with stories, um, you know, of a self-defense nature and, and wisdom and expertise. And he was a guy that, uh, that, that 
he empowered a lot of people. And uh, I don't know, it's a loss for Charlotte. And I was grateful to have known him in the little bit that I did and very grateful for his impact on the city and the people that live here, all the people that he touched. Um, he founded the Starks Training Institute in 1988 after he moved to Charlotte from his hometown of Rochester, New York, two years prior. And for the next three decades, he taught people how to protect themselves through seminars and concealed carry and safety awareness classes. He would host Don't Be a Victim. He also did one called Partners Against Crime on WCNC-TV in addition to uh, radio program Stark's Reality that aired on WBT here. Thank you very much, by the way, Jonathan Limehouse, for mentioning the radio station's name. I appreciate it. And call uh, call number, uh, the signal, 1110 a.m. He won an Emmy Award for his Don't Be a Victim series, which was nominated 11 times. He was a member of the American Women's Self-Defense Organization, the FBI's InfraGuard, National Range Officers Association, and the National Speakers Association. The Knights of Malta, a Roman Catholic religious order, knighted Starks on January 13, 2012. And that was one of his most, prigious, uh, most prestigious honors. So, rest in peace, Dan Starks. I'll miss you. Uh, meanwhile, police are warning people about apparently some nut job trying to flag down drivers on an entrance and exit ramp uh, on interstates. Drivers believe the man is claiming to be a stranded driver, but nobody seems to know what his intentions are. Uh, Queen City News interviewed a driver who said something just did not feel right. This is one of the things, actually, that Dan Starks talked about was trusting your gut instinct. People... We have these instincts for a reason. They have developed over millennia, right? People, people ignore their sense of fear because they try to convince themselves that, oh, I, I shouldn't think that way. I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't have this thought about this other person because that says something negative about me. I'm biased or prejudiced or whatever. And... What he always said and, and taught, as do other safety instructors, is you need to listen to that. And this woman did. Anitra Kotman. She lives in West Charlotte. And she said she'll never know for sure what was up, but her gut feeling could have saved her life. She says, I noticed a gentleman who was a very nice, high-end SUV, very well-dressed in his early to mid-30s. She thought maybe he had broken down on the entrance ramp to I-45 off Wilkinson Boulevard. He was flagging me down, so I thought, oh, a motorist in trouble. Should I stop? But then he got aggressive running into traffic. He ran partly onto the on-ramp, and I had to swerve left to avoid hitting him, and he was still furiously trying to get me to stop, and he was pointing toward my front driver's side tire telling me I had a flat, and I'm thinking this is all so odd. Spoiler alert, she did not have a flat tire. See, but she trusted her gut. She trusted her gut. I don't know if that guy was going to intend her harm or not. Maybe she misunderstood what he actually said. But we hear stories all the time. Somebody gets on an elevator, um, even though everything in their being is telling them, don't get on that elevator, that person on the elevator there's something wrong with that person. There's something, my body is telling me there's something wrong. There is some instinct kicking in. One of the other tips, by the way, 
um, if you've ever been a victim of like a, a crime, a burglary, or even a violent crime, and usually they'll ask people, the victims, or they'll ask family members, cops will ask them, oh, is it, you know, do you know of anybody that would want to do you harm or something? And more often than not, people will immediately think of a person. They'll think of somebody. But then they'll be like, well, could it be? No, they wouldn't do that. And they'll start dismissing it. And the cops will say, no, no, no. Who's this? Who's the person? Because they recognize the value of that gut reaction, the instinct that kicks in, the fight or flight stuff. You can't just ignore that. So you could be wrong. The question is how you act upon the instinct, right? How you act upon that emotion. The feeling is neither right or wrong. How you act upon the feeling can or cannot be. My mom taught me that one. She wasn't even a safety instructor. All right, Brett Winterbull's coming up next. Stick around. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.